Hi everybody, this is Jonathan. And this is Jay. And welcome to Our Story, American History Podcast. Jay, how are you feeling today, my friend? I think I'm feeling pretty well today. How about yourself? I'm fine. But we are talking about something very serious. What's going on in the world today, Jay? What's What's been in the headlines the past week? I mean, as always, there's a lot going on. But one of the things that's starting to dominate the news is the spread of the coronavirus coming over from Asia. Cases are now starting to be reported here in the United States. So a little bit of panic starting with that news. It seems like every year now there seems to be some kind of virus or quasi-pandemic about to hit avian flu, bird flu, swine flu, things like that. Coincidentally, Jay, we had planned this show about a month ago, our topic, and I don't know, uh, once again, it seems that we're tied into what's going on in the world. What's today's topic, Jay? Well, today's topic is the Spanish flu, a pandemic that hit the world all the way back in starting late 1917, possibly early 1918, and probably... I would say maybe next to the Black Plague was probably one of the most deadliest pandemics that the world had ever seen. Yeah, I I was reading up on this and some uh, virologists uh, are saying it's probably even worse than the Black Plague uh, just because of the sheer numbers of people killed. Obviously, when the Black Plague struck, um, there were a lot fewer people on the planet where uh, in 1918, many more people got sick and it spread very quickly. And in really reading up on this, and I guess even still today, one of the things that I noticed that was really, really kind of difficult to pinpoint was how did this all start? Because uh, I know you looked it up, I looked it up. There seemed to be a few different possible sources, and they really couldn't be any more different. It's amazing that two, three possible causes, and they're literally worlds apart. Right. Well, I think first we need to correct a misnomer. You know, growing up, we learned it was called the Spanish flu. It's, I think they depend on the name, uh, the pandemic of 1918, the influenza pandemic of 1918. Now, it was called the Spanish flu because the outbreak was during World War One, and mm-hmm. Spain was a neutral country, and they were the only one reporting any really health concerns inside the country at the time, and they were the first to report deaths from what would be known as the Spanish flu. So the world started calling it the Spanish flu, but its origins, and like you just said, Jay, there's three possible origins. I'm gonna go over one that I believe mm-hmm. uh, is true, and then you can you can tack on what you know, um, sure. any information you know, or, or if you know different origins. So my research, this is what I found. In late 1917 and very, very early 1918, New York City was actually hit with a flu epidemic but not widely reported because it was kind of just in the New York area. Mm-hmm. And then around February of 1918, a doctor in Haskell County, Kansas, by the name of Loring Minor, reported an unusually large amount of flu patients in his little uh, county. That was also related to, at the same time, a, there was a U.S. Army base in Kansas, Fort Funston, I think it's called. Okay. And a cook there by the name of Albert Gitchell fell ill and mm. had flu-like symptoms. And within almost 24 hours, he was a cook, so he was handling food and stuff like that. Within 24 hours, 100 more soldiers came in with similar symptoms. And by the time it abated in the camp, 46 of them had died. And yeah. mm-hmm. that's 
my and obviously they were you know with the u.s joining world war one those soldiers went overseas and that's how they believe it was spread it started in kansas maybe new york city most likely in kansas overseas to fight in a war and start to spread that way yeah and following up on that one like you said that that one fort out there in kansas from what i read kind of added on to that at the end was after about a week or so this flu this mystery flu that they that they started to notice started to appear in 14 other military camps so it was really starting to spread like you said world war 1 really this this is when this pandemic hit so another possible theory is that they believe that it was a military hospital in France behind the lines in late 1917, military pathologists at this one particular hospital started to notice the onset of a very lethal flu. They feel that this might have been sort of the ground zero for it for a couple of reasons. First of all, because this is a very, very crowded hospital, they said they were, this was a military hospital, they were getting a lot of people that were affected by gas attacks and just munitions and whatnot. They said that on an average day, over 100,000 troops would kind of flood through this hospital coming and going, uh, close quarters. So if a few people have a flu or, or a virus, it's literally going to spread like wildfire. One of the other theories about it is, of course, obviously, it's a military hospital. You got to keep these, these people fed. So livestock was coming in almost constantly to, to feed the, the patients and the doctors and, and everybody that was there. Not only that that the site of this particular camp, there was actually a pig farm that was there. And one of the theories is, is, is they noticed that with a lot of these flus, it usually starts in an animal, typically a bird, uh, gets passed on to either a human or their theory in this case that it got passed on to probably the pigs and then mutated and passed on to us. A second interesting theory is that they started noticing cases in East Asia in 1917, uh, early 1917, that really kind of mimicked, you know, what we call the Spanish flu. They feel that, again, this was a flu that developed most likely in birds, transferred to livestock. And because in East Asia, countries like China, and China was the big one that they talked about, because they were so densely populated. I mean, people were literally living on top of one another. Combine that with the fact that livestock was also very, very close by, this is one of the theories is that the the flu originated in China and in um, during World War One around 1917-1918, 96,000 Chinese laborers and some soldiers were actually working for the Allies. So they figured these workers and and, and soldiers brought it over, and this is another possible start for this pandemic. So basically, it's hard to really pinpoint how this started. We have to remember again that in 1917, 1918, they didn't have Center for Disease Control and, mm-hmm. and and the science associated with tracking viruses. In fact, it was believed that it was a bacteria that was causing all the problems. And a popular theory was myasia, meaning just bad air. That's just caused by bad air. So mm-hmm. th- there wasn't a lot of education or I want to say education, but there wasn't a lot known yet about the viruses and, and, and how they worked. What made this flu so lethal is A, how quickly it spread, and B, how quickly it killed people. Because we're talking about a window of, like we said, late 1917, early 1918 to about the summer of 1919. So Mm -hmm. a year and a half, maybe two years at the most. Uh, But the the toll it took on the world is devastating. So you you have 
World War One going on. You have these men in these trenches in filthy conditions living close to each other. You know, we, we talk about now how when you sneeze, you sneeze into your elbow and, you know, we have Purell and we wash our hands constantly. They didn't know to do that kind of stuff. So this spread very, very quickly throughout the world. So, Jay, the influenza, mm-hmm. influenza pandemic, March 1918 to about summer of 1919. What number did you see about estimated how many got ill worldwide? Okay, so some of the numbers that I pulled up, they figured that worldwide over 500 million people were affected with a death toll. And again, this is worldwide of anywhere from 50 to 100 million. Based on these numbers, that's, they say, anywhere from 3 to 5% of the Earth's population at that time. I mean, that's, that's pretty staggering in that short period of time, anywhere from 3 to 5% of the world's population was, was wiped so- out. Yeah, yeah. And, and the 500 million is about uh, what I saw about a third of the world's population at the time. Yeah. So you're talking 1.5 billion people on the planet at the time. Uh, one third of them get sick. 50 to 100 million die, and that's a newer number. That 50 to a mil- one, 100 million. What's interesting is that virologists are still studying it, and they're still oh, studying yeah. what happened, still trying to figure out where it started and, and how. And they came up with that new number. I think they're taking in things like, oh, this thing in China was probably it, too. And, oh, this, this little outbreak in New York earlier was probably part of it, too. So they're gathering as the data comes in there. These numbers are being re- readjusted all the time. Yeah, and some other numbers that I saw is in the United States, First interesting thing that I saw is they said that worldwide at this time, life expectancy wasn't what it is today, much, much lower. However, when this pandemic first hit the United States within that first few months, the life expectancy, the average life expectancy, excuse me, of your average U.S. citizen dropped by 12 years. So this this disease hits, and it's pretty much really just killing indiscriminately that the mortality rate dropped by 12 years in less than a year. I mean, that's that's just staggering. Numbers that I saw, as they said, about 28% of the population, U.S. population, was in, infected with a death toll of anywhere from 500 to 675,000. Native Americans were hit the hardest. Some things I read, as they said, some entire villages, Inuit, and Eskimo villages way up north were wiped out because of this. Another really interesting factor or stat that I read about this, just to show you just how quickly this spread and how deadly it was. One figure I saw is they said that within the first 14 weeks of the outbreak of the Spanish flu, it killed just as many people as the first 14 years of the AIDS virus being known. And when I read that, I was blown away. That's because for us, the AIDS epidemic, while completely different disease, I mean, that was like a big killer for us when we were growing up. It was very, very scary. And to see that 14 weeks, same amount of people killed as within 14 years when AIDS was first discovered. Scary. Right. I saw I saw a similar stat, but it was in, in the first 25 weeks of the flu. More people died in the first in the past 25 years of HIV/AIDS. Well, yeah, and that that just shows the science involved about how nowadays these viruses and diseases are really as soon as they're identified. And look, we're seeing it today with the coronavirus. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're, they're shutting down, they're restricting travel, they're they're you know, if you're showing signs, they're putting you in isolation and 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 you know, checking you, making sure. So they're really aware and on top of this in the sense of not letting it happen. I think that's something they might have learned from this. 
this mm-hmm. whole situation because again, it, I mean, the, the again, the numbers are staggering. Everybody was sick. If you were sick, you knew at least three people that were sick. And th- and again, they didn't know how it was being transmitted. They would wear the mask. They were, you know, they would they would put, you know, isolate them in, in, in a different room in the house. The government, local governments in all over the country were instituting either making businesses close or stagger their hours so not many people are on the street at the same time. Public schools were closed and well closed to, to teaching and, and reopened as hospital because hospitals were overflowing with the sick and uh, dying. You have a situation where uh, America just enters the war in 1917. Mm-hmm. The war officially ends in November of 1918. So you have this overlap of the flu and the war. And it just must have been like I can imagine like living as an adult or as a child growing up at that in, in, in that one year, two year period. My my reason my reading also showed that there was it kind of started, you know, we talked about how it started in like February, March in in Kansas and then spread. Mm-hmm. Uh, that early one, that early part of the flu didn't kill a lot of people and it kind of went away. But then it came back with a vengeance in the fall. Yeah, and, like a, like a much stronger strain of it, like almost like a mutated form of it came back. Yeah. Yeah, in the fall. And that lasted until about the summer of 1919. This is where we're seeing a majority of the deaths and the spreading um, worldwide. The, the death tolls in a lot of countries, I mean, it was staggering. Huge chunks of the population of China, India, were wiped out. Panic was really setting in in some of these countries because it just seemed like high percentages of the population were dying. I think one of the things that's really researching this is whenever there's an outbreak of the flu, two populations that they are very, very concerned about, and that's small children maybe under the age of five, newborns to the age of five, and people over the age of 65, much older, much weaker immune systems. But what they were finding with this is, you know, when this hit the U.S., and again, U.S. numbers is what I have, 99% of the fatalities in the U.S. were under the age of 65. Nearly half of the fatalities were between the ages of 20 and 40, and that's just not something that they had really ever seen before. Right. That's usually the age group that survives these things or doesn't get sick at all. It was very, I mean, we're going to say a lot. It was very devastating. And it wasn't acting in a way that people were used to it acting. Virologists nowadays, like you said, John, they're still studying this to try to figure out how did this happen? You know, of course, just like historians would say, if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Virologists want to look back on this and sort of see like what went wrong, what warning signs were missed. But one of the things that they noticed, and again, I think this really kind of speaks to even though back in 1917, 18, I'm sure the record keeping is nowhere near what it is today. It was actually the record keeping was actually good enough that they were able to determine that they feel that when this second wave came, this lethal mutation came, it caused something that they called a cytokine storm. And just really basically what that means is when a, a, a virus attacks you, your immune system will respond. So this mutated form, what it was doing in, in healthy people, people between the ages of 20 and 40, is the immune system would o- almost overcompensate. It would respond too much. And you would think, well, that should be good. That should really kill it off. Your immune system doesn't recognize, and especially when it gets into a hyperactive state like this, it doesn't recognize the good from the bad. It will just start to attack 
tissue. So what they were noticing is people's healthy immune systems were getting ramped up to the part that their bodies were literally betraying them. And this is this this second wave. This is possibly one of the causes of, of why it hit that normally healthy age group and why it was just so devastating. Let's talk a little bit about what the flu did. I mean, besides the high fever, the chills, things we normally, symptoms we normally associate with the flu, what virologists believe was happening was that it replicated deep in, that the, the virus would replicate deep in the lungs and it would cause it, it would trigger a stronger immune response, like you just said, which would then have an, you'd have an influx of white blood cells and fluids in order to fight the disease. But because of the extra white blood cells and the fluids, it would restrict how much oxygen was get. It would restrict the airspace in the lungs themselves. Therefore, you were actually drowning or suffocating to death. People drowned in their own phlegm. Not to be disgusting, but you know this is how people were dying. And and at some point, people were bleeding out of their ears and their nose. It was not a. There was a lot happening. And and again, we cannot overstate how quickly this was happening. We're talking about within three days. Sometimes people would be done. Okay, so we spoke about it kind of ending in mid-1919, and that's kind of not the absolute truth. I think the 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 virility and the extreme death tolls started to peter out around 1919, but they were still having cases of it and, and people dying from it up until around 1921. And all the way up until 1957, Jay, they were having... They were seeing it in people, like people would have it. And it was the H1N1 virus. I think we, we didn't mention that. It was around. It just kind of stopped being so devastating after that year and a half. But to lose 50 to 100 million people in a year and a half is just insane. Uh, obviously, more people died from the flu than died in all of World War One. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., Philadelphia had a situation where uh, 15,000 people died within, uh, I think, a two-week time span. So in the U.S. Army, more servicemen died from the flu than the war, obviously. 40% of the Navy of servicemen in the Navy reported uh, getting the flu. 36% of the Army reported getting the flu. So World War I, from 1914 to 1919, there were 20 million killed. Mm-hmm. And again, the flu killed between 50 and 100 million people in about two years. Yeah. yeah. I mean, some some other interesting things about it is the world had seen other epidemics. Uh, I read about, I think, maybe 10 or 15 years before this, there was uh, something that was known as the Russian flu. What really kind of made this particular epidemic or pandemic so much, you know, so much more prevalent worldwide was the fact that a couple of things from what I read. Uh, first of all, they talk about natural selection, natural selection of viruses. And basically, you know, what they said is you get sick and especially if you're really feeling sick, you have a high fever, you just can't get out of bed. You are going to stay home until you get better. You're going to pretty much seclude yourself from people until you get better where this weaker, uh, maybe a weaker strain of the virus might affect somebody. And maybe they don't feel too good, but they're good enough to go to work. And if they do spread it, they're spreading this weaker virus. So what they were noticing, one of the things they noticed that was happening was with uh, men in the trenches. If they had this very strong strain of it, they were becoming very sick. Well, they were transported to a hospital where people are there sick from the flu. People are there exposed to gas, munitions, wounds, and whatnot. You have this densely packed area with very, very sick people. Add into that the fact that the modernization of transportation People could really travel worldwide now on on steamships and across the country on trains. The fact that travel was much easier for the average person, that's why you're seeing it spreading so fast because things like that, the modernization of transportation. 
Oh yeah, it was a perfect storm for the for the disease uh, between the modern transportation and uh, a world war outbreak where people that you're talking about young men that if living out their lives would stay within like a 10 mile radius of where they were born if not for things like this like the war. So after the initial devastation, uh, we're talking. You know, you and I were trying to talk about what was the aftermath of it. Well, the aftermath was obviously study and that's what they're doing now they're still studying it and in 2008 scientists have been replicating it in very safe environments but they've been kind of bringing back the flu so they could study it and in 2008 they a doctor found that a group of, of genes that was part of the virus allowed the virus to weaken the bronchial tubes in the lungs which would then allow bacterial pneumonia to set in mm-hmm. so you know, you have the double dose of the flu can kill you with by uh, overactivating your immune system, like we spoke about earlier. Yes. But then it's also weakening your lungs so that something like bronchial pneumonia can come and set up residence and kill you that way too. So you know, it was a, it was, it was, <laughs> it was bad. It was bad. But talking about pneumonia, one of the things I read that they noticed that again with this kind of second wave, this deadlier flu where people were more susceptible to pneumonia. One of the reasons they think that just as quickly as this epidemic hit, it died out because doctors are starting to recognize sort of like this secondary pneumonia developing and they were actually able to to treat it much more effectively and probably cut down on the spread of it there. So they were really, I mean, I guess one of the good things that I I was reading is that as this epidemic was really starting to spread, doctors and and more specifically nurses, it really seemed like doctors and nurses were really dedicating themselves to trying to fight this disease that they they were learning just as quickly as this, this virus was fighting back, they were fighting back even harder. And a lot of that observation and hard work probably led to it tapering out just as quickly as it came on. So in 2009, a flu pandemic was sweeping across the globe. Again, nothing to the extent of the 1918 flu, but they, you know, researchers came up with a vaccine for the 2009 flu pandemic, and they discovered that it provided some cross protection against the 1918 flu pandemic strain. Because I believe they were both H1N1 uh, strains. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. I do remember that. Let me, John, let me ask you, are you required at your job every year to get a flu shot, flu vaccination? Are we required? No, yes. it's not mandatory. No. It's not mandatory. Okay. In the past at my job, they highly suggest that we, that we do get it. I work with the public. This year was the first time that they made it absolutely mandatory that all of us, you know, all the workers get the flu shot unless there is a medical reason. I believe one of them is is if you're because I guess they use egg protein in in these um, right. vaccines. So if you are allergic to eggs, you absolutely cannot get it. That's absolutely fine. They made it mandatory, and if we do not get a flu shot, we have to work with a mask. Symptoms or no symptoms, if we don't have that flu shot, we have to wear a mask when we're working. So this is kind of like the world we're starting to live in now with viruses and and really trying to really stop the the spread of viruses and and really becoming like a global pandemic uh, like we saw back in 1917, 1918. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, it's definitely, well, I think with the education and the awareness, I mean, even 10 years ago, 
it'd be strange to just go to the mall or something to see people with with a surgical mask on. But mm-hmm. you know, you always see one or two in the winter nowadays. And then, you know, in the United States, you know, you've seen pictures from I think China was or or Japan were one of the first people to always go out in masks and stuff like that. You'd see it on the news, but it's moving over here, and I understand why people do it. I get it. It's an awful way to go. It's a real awful way to go. But I, you know, I think one of the the things is is basic, very very basic protections could really help people out. Wearing a mask, washing your hands. I mean, you know, they they told us, you know, I'm sure you know your moms and dads told you when you were a kid, and your teachers told you, washing your hands has been proven time and again to be probably one of the number one weapons in the in, in the fight against the spread of disease. And I'm sure you notice now, it, it seems like everywhere you go now, you'll see like Purell stations, uh, you go to the supermarket, I've seen it even now where, where not only do they have Purell stations, they'll actually have, hey, here's like a sanitary wipe, wipe down the cart. If you want to wipe down the cart, the handle before you use it, I think people are becoming a lot more aware of it and realizing that it's a very simple thing to do, but it's a very effective way to fight the spread of disease. Simple precautions like that, washing your hands, sneezing into your arm. Another thing is when you, when you, I hear people all the time at work or wherever saying, oh, I'm feeling a little fluey today. Well, if you're feeling fluey, go to the doctor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you don't Absolutely. Be, you know, you're not, you're not impressing anybody by powering through the illness because God forbid you really do have the flu. You're spreading it to people and it's just a hot mess. So if you're feeling sick, go see someone about it. And if you can get the flu shot, you should get the flu shot. A lot of people give them away for free. Every time I go to my pharmacy, it's like, would you like a free flu shot today? No, no, thank you. I'm okay. You know, but they, <laughs> they give it. I mean, I can't, I'm, I'm allergic to eggs. That's why I don't do it. But, you know, it's even free now at this point because they're really oh, kind of aware and, and, and on top of not spreading these these diseases around we're talking about the coronavirus now it's been in the news for a week and a half now and is it bad yeah it's bad but i don't know if we're still vigilant i don't know if we'll ever see anything like the 1918 breakout again you really hope that we don't and again i think there were so many factors as to why that spread and really before really researching this in my mind i thought 1917, 1918, what did they know about hygiene? What did they know about a lot of these things back then? To me, it really seems that the fact that this virus was very determined to affect people, mutating to really kind of make that second wave, that second comeback was definitely a big part of it because, like you said, John, one of the things when I was doing research on it, everything, every picture I saw, people in masks, quarantining people, really encouraging people to stay home. You know, you mentioned businesses. I was reading about grocers and shopkeepers that would literally tell their customers, like, I am keeping the door closed. Leave your orders outside. I will collect them later and I will deliver them to you outside as well. So they were taking these steps, but it just seems like this this virus is very determined to really run its course. Yeah. So in, in regards to this country, because we're an American history podcast, you know, so we're coming out of World War One. Spent very little time in the war. We we emerge victorious from the war. We come out of the flu pandemic. I want to say unscathed, but compared to the rest of the world, I mean, six hundred seventy-five thousand. Like you know, and you're talking fifty-two hundred worldwide. So six seventy-five is again a big number, but compared to what was going on in the rest of the world, 
it could have been worse in this country uh mm -hmm. and that leads us into you know one of the best decades of, of the country's you know lifespan which is the roaring 20s again we haven't seen anything like that since hopefully we never will mm -hmm. because again like we stated before with the hiv or the other with the current flu pan, uh, viruses you know science and, and government are on top of it absolutely all right jalen thank you everybody for uh, joining us we have any wrap-ups you got you want to do any shout outs Again, I just want to let people know that we are on Instagram, Our Story Podcast. You can look for us there. Uh, I post pictures about the content that we talk about. And if you do want to reach out to John or I and, and give us ideas for the show or topics uh, on U.S. history that you want to hear about, it's the best way to get in contact with us. Uh, leave a message. Uh, I do monitor that page. So if you reach out, you know we'll read it. And if it's a topic that we're interested in, we'll talk about it. And we will give you a shout out on the air. Yep. We love the shout out. And also, John, we haven't mentioned on any shows yet, but you and I do, uh, we're, we're part of other podcasts too. So you can catch Jay on Stuff You Don't Need to Know, available everywhere you're hearing this podcast. And you can also catch Jay on Enter the Nerd Zone um, with his partner, Pete. And you can hear me on Nerd in Me, the Nerd in Me podcast uh, with my partner, Alan. So, uh, yeah, believe it or not, we do have full-time jobs, but we love podcasting. <laughs> so that's why we do what we do. Right, Jay? Absolutely. All right. Once again, I want to thank everybody for joining us. And remember, it's not just history. It's our story. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.